Well, good morning. It is good to see you. Those of you who traveled over the holidays, welcome home. We're in Romans. Uh, we've been in there for quite a while. We're in chapter 3. We did take a week off from Romans to celebrate Christmas and look at some verses related to the birth of Christ, but we came back into chapter 3 last week, and we'll continue there Today, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll begin with verse 1, and we'll read through verse 8. These are the same passages we looked at last week. We'll just take a few more of the verses today and look at them. So, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. All right, so we'll stop there for this morning, and we're going to look specifically at verses 3 through 8. So these are kind of strange verses to understand as you just read them through. So let me give you a bit of introduction. I think we have here in the Apostle Paul a very keen thinking individual, maybe one of the sharpest men who ever lived. We've re- you can read in other places in Scripture of his credentials, including uh, we know of his education. He was a very bright man, but we don't have a lot of places in Scripture to observe his mind in action. Now in Acts, which records Paul's missionary journeys, we're repeatedly told that he quote-unquote reasoned with the Jews in the synagogues. We have verses like these. Acts 9.22 says, But Saul, that's his name before they started calling him Paul, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 17, 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Acts 17, 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Acts 18.4 And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts 18.28 For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Acts 19.8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 
So we see that Paul was not shy about sharing the truth and confronting and reasoning and debating the people that he encountered, even going into the Jewish synagogues and doing this. But there's almost no record about how these debates looked or how Paul dealt with the questions that his opponents might raise. So while there aren't very many examples of those kind of debates going on, here in Romans chapter 3, I think we can get just a glimpse of the back and forth reasoning that Paul must have experienced during his missionary work. I mean, you have to remember, this is an epistle. It is a letter written to the Christians in Rome. But when you read it, it sounds like someone is standing right in front of him, arguing with him. So he is recalling, perhaps, the objections that he has heard in his interactions with Jewish people throughout his missionary work. So if you keep that in mind, the passages are a little easier to understand. Remember, the first two chapters of Romans contain really the bedrock of his teaching when it comes to the universality of human sin, the nature of human sin. But he seems to be here recalling in his mind the questions that sharp Jewish opponents may have raised over the years. And so he's reluctant to move on in this epistle without at least addressing the main ones. So we've already looked at one of these questions, and that was last week. We addressed the first few verses, the first couple of this chapter, and the, the verse opens, verse 1 opens, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Paul was here answering the objection of what about God's people? God chose these people. Because in following Paul's logic, as he's gone through, we see that there were in fact advantages to being Jewish. The main one, he said last week, was their possession of the Word of God. In today's passage, we're going to look at the next two questions that were raised. Now, if you look at the text, verses 3 through 8, there's actually seven question marks in that passage. So Paul is asking a lot of questions, but I think these are different ways of phrasing two main points, and that's what we'll focus on today. Two basic questions that he needs to answer before he moves on to what is really a great summary passage and that is verses 9 through 20. So let's look at that first question that Paul is going to deal with. And it is a question of God's faithfulness. And we see this in verse 3. Where he says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And so... This could be a question to Paul, accusing him of attacking the promises of God. Is God going to keep his promises? Is he, in fact, faithful? And it grows out of things that we've already discussed. Remember, Paul defended early in this chapter the value of being Jewish. But at the same time, he maintains that being Jewish does not guarantee that you are saved. And he equates that with the Gentiles. They're not saved either just by who they are or by doing good works or possessing some moral code. So because of that, 
Paul asserts that both Jews and Gentiles rightly stand before the condemnation of a just God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. So you can imagine Paul's opponents coming at him with a question like this. And I'll put it up on the screen. If Jews are not saved from these things, from being Jewish and being circumcised and having the law and all of that, and are therefore perishing in unbelief, and then let's kind of throw in a stereotypical assumption here, that most Jews, as you know, do not accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Isn't God then proved to be unfaithful to His people since He made an eternal covenant with them? I think that's a really good question. If God covenanted with the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and some of them are not going to be saved, doesn't that make God unfaithful? I mean, if Paul is right, that would have to make God unfaithful, wouldn't it? But since God is faithful, which both Paul and his opponents would agree, then doesn't that make Paul's argument that you can be a Jew and be lost without Jesus erroneous? Isn't he wrong? I think that is really an important question. And the reason I think Paul thought it was important is he comes back to it in chapter 9. And we'll look at that when we get to Romans 9 through about 11, where he's really going to answer a couple of questions for us. Has God failed the Jews? And is God unjust in his treatment of the Jews? So we'll cover those in those chapters later. Again, reminding us in today's passage that this is an important question. But here in Romans 3, his answer is much briefer. Again, we're talking about the faithfulness of God. So when Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? I think he indicates, first of all, that in spite of their great national unbelief, there were some Jews then, just as now, that believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And secondly, that then, as now, their salvation is through the channel of faith in God's promises They are saved because God is faithful to his promises and they believe that. Because the problem often is that in our sin, we tend to presume upon God, obliging him to save us, irregardless of whether we believe in him or not. The Jewish people did that based on their heritage. We're children of Abraham. We have... Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in our line, we do all of the ceremonies in the temple or in the tabernacle. Christians today believe, do it by believing that they will be saved because of things like, well, I come from a Christian family. My parents are saved. Or I take the Lord's Supper, or I've been baptized, or I've been confirmed, or many other ceremonies like that but we can't do that here's the truth of the matter God is faithful he will save those that he has promised to save but not apart from faith and you could add to that not mechanically because your mom and dad were so and so or your ancestors were of this nationality. Yes, he's faithful. He will save who he's promised to save, but not apart from faith. I mean, what is the promise? Who will he 
promise to save. Well, later on in chapter 10, he'll say this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So who does God promise to save? Those people who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. Not those people who are related to this group of people or who partake in this or that religious ceremony. God is faithful. You see, the thing we need to remember is that man's unfaithfulness does not change God's faithfulness. The objector in this case, Paul's opponent, probably had Jews in mind. And Paul speaks to that in chapter 11. I'm just going to kind of tease you with this. Again, we're not going to study it in depth until we actually get there. But in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? In other words, broken his covenants? Become unfaithful? Paul says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Later in verse 29 of chapter 11, he says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul is saying, I'm a Jew. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. Not because I'm a Jew, but because I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing that you are required to have. God is faithful. You see, the problem was the Jewish people that Paul was speaking to were conflating two principles. God's promises of faithfulness to the nation of Israel and the reality that individual Jews were not promised salvation by being Jewish. And he explains this in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed... For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So again, he's redefining what it means to be God's chosen people. Okay, back to verse 3 here in Romans 3. uh, Paul proceeds to answer his own question. Does the unfaithfulness of men nullify the faithfulness of God? Verse 3, verse 4, he says, by no means. And that in the Greek language is about the strongest negative expression that you can use. It actually implies um, impossibility. It's like he's saying, of course God cannot be unfaithful in his promises, or really in any other way. By no means. Then Paul, as is his habit, quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 51 Verse 4, now we know that Psalm 51 is David's great prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba was uncovered. And so it reflects the attitude that David had in his confession and repentance. Verse 4 says, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Because God is perfect, 
He himself is the measure of goodness and truth. And because of that, his word is its own verification and his judgment is its own justification. It's utter folly to presume that the Lord of heaven and earth would not, what this verse says, prevail against sinful, perverted judgment that either man or Satan could make against him. So the first question is, God as faithful. Is God faithful? The second question deals with our sin. Now I think as you read verses 3 and 4, you, you can acknowledge that that's a really good question. That's a significant issue. It's reasonable and it's important because it deals with the matter of God's faithfulness. Quite frankly, if you don't believe that God is faithful, you probably struggle a great deal in the Christian life. So I think it's a fair question to ask God how God can be faithful to his promises if each and every member of the covenant people of Israel is not saved. And the reason we know it's an important question is that Paul uses considerable amounts of ink to explain it. It's not really that way with this second question about our sin. In fact, I think in Paul's mind it's not really a question of all, it's just kind of a quibble. It's playing around. I think Paul sees it as toying with theological matters. And I think that's why it just really deserves the scorn that Paul gives to it. Let's look at those verses. Let's start in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So the objection the people are bringing here against Paul is really an objection based on the fact that he is attacking God's purity. The very first part of that verse, but if our unrighteousness serves to show uh, the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us. So it's an attack saying that God is not pure in his holiness. So I think Paul heard questions like this a lot. In one way, I think he did, or that would make me think that he did, is that he presents this objection about our sin in three different forms. And so we want to look at those real quickly. The three forms. The first one, we see God's role as the judge. The question about God's role as judge. We could rephrase this objection by saying this. If our unrighteousness or our sin is the necessary background against which God displays His wisdom and His love and His mercy and salvation, then how can God judge us for what therefore obviously has a good end? Okay. And you might think in this case that Paul would respond with some carefully reasoned distinction here or some truth that he hasn't revealed yet, some theological gem you think he's about to lay on us. 
You know, he could even reply something as simple as that a good end does not justify a bad means. I mean, there are very complex answers to this question. Uh, Frederick Louis Godet was a Swiss Protestant theologian back in the 19th century. He refers to this logical error as utilitarianism. I'll just read it to you so you'll know how deep this can get. See if this helps you understand. To make such an argument valid, one would require to begin by proving that the useful result sprang from the evil committed in principle, such as the teaching of pantheism. Living theism, on the contrary, teaches that this transformation of the bad deed into a means of progress is the miracle of God's wisdom and power continually laying hold of human sin to derive from it a result contrary to its nature. Man remains fully responsible to God for the bad deed as an expression of the evil will of its author and despite the good which God is pleased to extract from it. That clarify things? I don't... He may be right. I haven't had enough coffee. I need to read that a few more times. It sounds right, and Paul certainly could have argued something like that. But he doesn't, does he? Instead, his reply is merely a categorical statement regarding the certainty of God's judgment. Verse 6. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? So the argument would be something like this. If there's a world, then there must be a God who created it, and that God acts as judge over that world. Those who live and act in the world are responsible to him. Therefore, the judgment of God is a given. It is just a fact, a reality, and any argument that would suggest that it is not is fallacious. So the question, again, was, can God inflict wrath on us? How could he if our unrighteousness serves as a backdrop to his goodness of salvation? Paul's response is, hey, God is going to judge the world. Okay. John Murray says it this way. Paul's appeals to the fact of universal judgment, and he does not proceed to prove it. Paul doesn't offer proof, he just states it. He accepts it as an ultimate datum of revelation, and he confronts the objection in verse 5 with this fact. About the certainty of God's judgment, there can be no dispute. Once the judgment is accepted as a certainty, then all such objection, as is implied in verses 5, 7, and 8, falls to the ground. The answer to objection is proclamation. He just says, God is going to judge. How could he not? So God as the judge is the first form that this issue of our sin takes. The second one is our condemnation. So this one focuses more on our contemplated judgment rather than on the judge himself. We're now looking at it from our perspective. My condemnation. The first says, how can God judge sin if sin actually leads to what in the end is beneficial? That was the question we just were posed. Now, Paul's answer was that God is going to judge sin regardless. The second form of the objection says something more like this. If my sin 
enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, how can he condemn me? And that's based on verse 7. Verse 7 says, If through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So if my sin, my lying, enhances God's truthfulness and increases his glory, how can he condemn me? Paul doesn't even answer this question. He just goes on to the next question. And at the end of that question, he kind of gives a universal, here's what I think about it, their condemnation is just. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So the second question, God doesn't, or Paul doesn't even uh, honor that question with an answer. Third question, third form of this objection. Doing evil that good may result. This is the most extreme, but it seems to be the objection Paul may have heard the most. Because he refers to it here in chapter 3, but he also deals with it later in chapter 6. In fact, the first 23 verses of chapter 6 deal with this question. So this builds on the question we've already asked. And Paul here also states that accusations of teaching this have already been widely spread about him. And, you, and when I uncover this question, you'll say, yeah, that, I can see how those questions would be leveled against Paul. So verse 8 says, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So doing evil that good may come. So you could phrase that as, the more one sins, the more God is glorified. So I mentioned that this is the most extreme, not just, or basically because it's not just dismissing God's judgment, but it's encouraging sinful behavior in us, in Christians. And you've heard this argument before. It goes by the theological name of antinomianism. Now, you may not have heard that. It really it means disregard for God's law. Anti-nomos, and then ism. Disregard of God's law. You may have heard things like this. If we are saved by grace through faith, which that sounds like what we believe, right? Entirely apart from any works of the law, then what does it matter whether we live righteous lives or not? Eat, drink, and be merry. Indeed, isn't it good that we sin? Because then God is given even more glory for His grace and for His forgiveness as our Savior. As we unpack this, I want you to consider three words, faith, justification, and good works. That's actually more than three words, three terms. I count like other old men that are on television a lot. <laughs> That's four words. I know that. So when I put the argument to you in this way that I just did, Emphasizing that we're saved by grace through faith. We recognize, even if you haven't before, that this 
is not just an old issue that Paul is dealing with, but rather it's a current issue, and it's a critical one. In fact, it pertains to the very nature of the gospel. Here's what I mean. Is it true that the gospel of salvation by grace can lead us to sin more? Or at least does it excuse it? Is it enough to sin and then to glibly say, I'm forgiven? Without any genuine repentance, without any repudiation of our behavior of evil, without any decision to live differently, much less anything like restitution, is it okay to do that? If it is, and if this is where Christianity leads, then I, for one, want nothing to do with it. This is a mockery. It is an offense against God's judgment. To think that you can just sin at will and then just say, oh, I'm forgiven. But if on the other hand, we insist on Christians doing righteous deeds, declaring, as Paul does, that we must not sin so that grace may abound, how do we preserve the truth that the gospel of grace is apart from any human merit? So I want to look at the Reformation for just a moment, because this is really one of those areas where Catholic theology and Protestant theology most clearly diverge. Catholics, I believe, have a proper emphasis, a proper concern for works. I don't think they believe for a moment that it's all right to sin at will and then yet claim to be saved. But Catholic theology brings works into salvation in a sense that God justifies us in part by producing these good works and that we are saved by faith plus those good works. I'm going to use the three words we had on the screen to show you some formulas, if you will, for how these things are different. The Catholic formula for justification would be something like faith plus good works equals justification. And I know this is a simplification, so I don't want to debate this in any detail. These are broad brush statements. Faith plus good works equal justifications. Now you know at Protestants, if dating back to the Reformation, sola fide, salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. No works enter into justification. In fact, that faith is not even a work. Scripture mentions that it is a gift. But Protestants add, and I'll say should add, we'll come back to that in a moment, that good works must follow faith if we are justified. Good works must follow faith. This is the teaching of James. We went through that entire book. Faith without works is dead. So the Protestant formula would be something like faith alone equals justification, but we add to that justification good works. Those good works follow after that justification and prove its authenticity. So why did I say should add? Protestants have this formula where they should add good works. Well, there is a deficient 
Protestant theology, and it is the formula of antinomianism. And it would be something like faith equal justification. You can leave off the good works, minus the good works. In other words, this is the phrase I quoted earlier. It's from chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? If it is God's grace that forgives us, doesn't more sin equal more grace? That's the question. And Paul says, by no means. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. I mean, you don't have to be an expert theologian to see that this is not true Christianity just sinning at will because God is gracious to forgive. I mean, look at how Jesus insisted on radical change of behavior for everyone that would follow him. Luke 9, 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Not indulge himself. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. About Luke 6, starting in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? That's a good question. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Here's what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All of those are words of Jesus. Do you think Jesus believed that you could call him Lord and sin at will so that God's grace would be shown more to the people around you. So how can we say things like this? Well, the reason we can is that God never justifies a person without regenerating them. And by that I mean giving them a new nature. A new nature that will hate sin and will strive for righteousness. One that is made alive to Christ. Because remember, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Paul doesn't spell this out in Romans 3. Here he's merely content to scorn this position. I just feel like he wanted to say, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. But he doesn't. He gets to it later in chapter 6. And there he teaches that all who are saved are joined in Christ. Because Christ lives in them, they want what Christ wants. And if we find that we're not increasingly coming to hate sin and to love righteousness, then we're probably not really Christ's. It's time to be honest. They're not true Christians. By definition, Christianity must be the, both, the most beneficial, or you could say the only beneficial thing or force in the world. Why? Because, because Christianity is the work of God. Even that very first work in your heart we call regeneration is a work of God. Only God 
can be ultimately beneficent. I mean, do you doubt this? If you do, then you haven't really understood the first two chapters of Romans. Those chapters have told us about the nature and the extent of human sin. They've demonstrated that men and women by themselves are on a path leading away from God, and that path is continually downward. No original goodness, no ultimate goodness can then come from mere men and women. If good is to be seen anywhere, it must be from God himself. And it must be seen in those in whom he has planted his very nature. Christians. What a calling if you're a Christian. The source of God's goodness to the world. The agent, I should say, of God's goodness in the world. What a destiny. Verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come? If you find yourself thinking that way, I would say you're not a true Christian. You're no Christian if evil in yourself and in others does not distress you. You're no Christian if you can take the transgression of God's laws lightly. If you're a Christian, you will hate sin. You will repudiate it. You will fight against it. And you'll strive for righteousness. Because you see, to be a Christian is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ and genuinely desire to serve him. That's what having a Lord entails. In Jude, the book of Jude in verse 4, we, it states that the people who presume on God's grace to justify their sin are ungodly people who, it says, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's final response as he closes out that verse was, their condemnation is just. You see, there's no room in Paul's theology for a carnal Christian one who accepts Jesus as Savior, but yet does not take him as Lord as well. That would be nonsensical to Paul. And so those who twist his teaching and accuse him of teaching things like that, he says they will be condemned and rightly, justly so. So let's talk about the debate here. The question, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Paul says there's every advantage to it, including specifically having the very words of God in your possession. Next question, will Jewish unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Paul says absolutely not. In fact, it establishes it. Paul, uh, God will be faithful despite their unfaithfulness. Third question, if our sin commends his righteousness, how can he judge us? Paul replies, we do not do evil that good may come of it. God judges the world righteously. As I close today, I'm going to ask our worship team to come back to the stage. Paul started all of this back in chapter 1 when he said the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Remember verse 18, chapter 1? And then in chapter 2, he described why 
by describing the condition of sinful man. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've heard some objections to this statement. You know, Paul said, hey, the Jews, just like the Gentiles, are under God's condemnation. And that offended some of the Jewish people, I'm sure. So here we have his response to their objections. So if you are without Christ this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I have a question for you. And that is, what is your objection? If Paul was here, what would you ask him? What would you confront him with? What would you say to Paul? I mean, if you know what the gospel says and you reject it, there must be a reason. You believe it to be untrue? Do you think there's a better way? Do you think it shows inconsistency with God? Maybe you believe that because God has not judged you yet, and you're 15 or 25 or 35 or 45, that he'll never judge you. That is the hope of every impenitent person. Paul has labored the point that all people need the gospel. All the people of Paul's day and all the people of our day. And if you today have never given your life to Jesus Christ, you need the gospel too. Won't you consider this morning the good news of the gospel and make this the day of salvation? Let's pray.